Well, thank you, Sarah. Daughter to Kevin and Christine Gartley. Friday and Saturday night, Refugee Bridge had a couple events here. And uh, if you're familiar with the Ministry of Refugee Bridge, they uh, really have a mission to help rescue people who have been persecuted for their faith and give them new hope and new life in Canada. And uh, it was amazing because this has been going on for a few years of some fundraising. We ourselves as a church have adopted a family that's still in Thailand. And uh, what was so amazing about these last two nights was that there were uh, some of the first families arrived and sharing their story and really about how them being able to come to Canada has just completely altered their life. And so, um, just want to encourage you, as Adam mentioned about the online auction, uh, get involved. It's just a fun way to help them raise some funds uh, for this ministry. But I'd like to share with you about a life-altering event of my own. And it's probably not what you're thinking. I mean, coming to Jesus was a life-altering event. That was pretty awesome. Getting married to Tina, that was a life-altering event. That was uh, pretty great, too. Um, Having kids was a life-altering event. Uh, moving uh, from Edmonton to Calgary and from Calgary to just outside Ottawa and from Ottawa back to here, those are all life-altering events. But one of the most significant events that I remember was in grade nine. And it was when I put on glasses for the very first time. I don't know how long I was blind, but see, I take my glasses off, and I can no, all, all, you are all just fuzzy little somethings. I, I can't even make out a single face without my glasses. And I don't know how long it was that I sat in the front row. I think I felt like I was being punished, but it was actually to help me to see what was on the chalkboard. And you know, you would squint a little bit. And I don't know how long I did that until probably one of my teachers just said to my mom or my dad and said, you know, you really should get Norb's eyes checked. So, you know, what the deal is, you go and uh, you go to the optometrist and they go through that deal, one, two, two, one, right? And you're all kind of confused and you're not really sure if this is going to help at all and how in the world is this going to help me actually get a prescription that fits. Well, uh, a couple of weeks after doing that, I was called that, you know, my glasses are ready for pickup and so I go and at the time my optometrist was in the, the lower level of what was then Edmonton Center or now City Center Mall. And I'll never forget sitting down at the table and the lady comes, takes the glasses out of the box and I just put them on for the very first time. And it was like, wow. I could see across the mall and I could see the other stores that were there. No longer did I have to kind of like go feel around and walk into the store to realize that it was like Radio Shack or something like that. I could actually read it and see it. And I had taken the bus to go pick up these glasses. And so I'm taking the bus home and I remember just continually doing this. Wow. Suddenly it wasn't just this green glob. It was a tree with intricate leaves, and I could see this fine detail. You could say there was a revelation, a vision that I had of sorts that had changed. And my hope and prayer today is that we would see Jesus in a way that maybe gives us some new perspective. Or maybe you've never seen Jesus in this way. You've never maybe really seen him for who he really is and who we are, in fact, apart from him and who we are when we are in him.
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is the passage that uh, Sarah read for us. We've been just a few weeks now into our studies of the book of Colossians. And we're kind of capturing our thoughts under the kind of uh, theme of being with God, being with Jesus. What does this mean? And if you have your Bibles open, you may have uh, a little title there. And I've noticed that most translations have a different title, all kind of meaning the same thing. The New International Version calls this section, The Supremacy of the Son of God. Or the Christian Standard Bible says, The Centrality of Christ. English Standard Version, the preeminence of Christ. New Living Translation, which is always maybe a little bit, a little easier to read, a little under, just simply says Christ is supreme. And so you have these words like supremacy and centrality and preeminence and Christ is preeminent and supreme. And what does it all mean? They're big words and they're important words. But let me give you even a simpler word. Jesus is better. He's just better. Last week, Pastor Adam ended his message by repeating that phrase, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And I want to pick, off, pick up where he left off and ask the question, then why is Jesus better? And in verses 13 and 14, Paul was reminding his readers or those who heard this letter read to them of all that God has done for them. And Paul was reminding them of their change in status, to use Pastor Adam's words. And they were qualified, they were rescued, they were brought, they were redeemed, they were forgiven. And, and this kind of, I think, triggered Paul. And at this point, he just goes off. And he launches into this poetic praise of Jesus and says, yes, Jesus is better. And here's why. Let me tell you why. And many scholars think that verses 15 through 20 were perhaps from an early Christian hymn. And Jesus, or sorry, and Paul is just quoting it. Or maybe at the very least, he's paraphrasing it because he wants to make this point that Jesus is better. But I also get this sense that I can kind of see Paul maybe going off a little bit here, just kind of rapid fire, throwing out these phrases, this poem almost just flowing from his lips as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, maybe anticipating a chorus of amens after each one, dictating these words to Timothy, and Timothy's just scrambling and trying to keep up as these words just flow from Paul's lips. And Paul is not simply saying that Jesus is one of many other gods or spiritual powers, but that he is in fact better than all the others. And I think it's important to remind ourselves of why Paul is writing to the Christians at Colossae in the first place. You see, there evidently was a problem. It's not stated specifically anywhere in the letter, but you can kind of read between the lines and figure some of this out. And Paul had gotten a report and he heard that there were some who had come into the church and they started to teach things about Jesus that weren't true. But this resulted in some theological confusion on their part and it started to undermine their initial true and pure faith. This was a threat uh, to the church and to the, new, the faith of these new believers. And Paul just equivocally wants to state that Jesus is not one among many gods. 
Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And if we were to summarize the threat that this church faced, it might be these two things. Number one is that somehow Jesus is less than God. That that somehow Jesus is not equal to God. And secondly, that there was this secret knowledge that only a few could attain. A mystery that only a few could know. And it caused doubt, and it caused confusion. And when Paul hears about this, I think he gets a little upset. And so that's why he writes so boldly and passionately. He wants them to know who Jesus is. He wants them to know, in fact, who they themselves were and who they are now. What has changed in their lives, and ultimately then what their purpose was. Aren't those some of the key questions that we ask in life? Like, who is God? Who am I? Who has he called me to be? Why why am I here? What's my purpose? So let's dive in and discover the answers to these questions and why ultimately Jesus is better. So who Jesus is, first of all, to understand why Jesus is better, we need to know who Jesus is. Now, there are many phrases here in in these verses, theological truths, and and an effort to simplify it a little bit. I'm just going to give you three words and unpack those a little bit, and uh, we'll touch on most, probably not all of these phrases, but I think we can capture it in this, and it'll make sense. Number one is that Jesus is better because Jesus is creator. Jesus is the creator. Now, wait a minute. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, I thought God was the creator. And of course, you'd be right. But remember that Paul is writing to respond to those who were saying that Jesus was somehow not equal to God, that he was just created by God. And and, and it's almost like Paul comes up and he says, oh, really? That's what you think? Well, let me just tell you this. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. That's how he starts it. The Son is the image of the invisible God. And by using this word image, Paul is using it to mean a reflection that shares the reality that it reveals. A reflection that shares the reality it reveals. And notice that he's talking about the image, not simply an image. And Paul starts right off by saying here that Jesus reveals the very character of God. That Jesus is a revelation of what God is really like. That Jesus shares the mercy and the love and the power and the grace. All of the attributes of God are in fact revealed in Jesus. Now of course we know that God is spirit, therefore he's invisible. But what Paul is saying is that God made him visible in the person of Jesus. John, also writing on this theme in his gospel in the opening chapter in verse 18, says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son. Get this, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
So first Paul says the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is a revelation of what we cannot see. And then he says, going on in verse 15, he says, the firstborn over all creation. Now when we read that, we might on the surface assume that Paul is saying that Jesus was somehow, you know, the first person created. And there are some religions that believe that. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, believe that. They assume wrongly that firstborn is like a first child. And they fail to consider the whole context here as we're about to see that Jesus created all things. And so then they actually then also miss the entire teaching of the New Testament that Jesus was eternal. He was there at the beginning. You may be familiar with John 1, chapter 1, familiar words. In the beginning was the Word. And the word there means Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. And the word or Jesus was with God. And the word Jesus was God. And if you keep reading verses 2 and 3, it says, He was with God in the beginning. And then he says this, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Through him all things were made. And so Paul is using the word here, firstborn, not to mean first created, but he wants to communicate that Jesus was first in rank or honor, that the highest honor belongs to him, that he is the firstborn, he is the highest, he is supreme over all creation. And if we have any question at all about Jesus' role in creation, verse 16 should answer it definitively. Listen to these words. They're so clear and powerful. For in him, again, Jesus, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and for him. Just remember that last phrase, created through him and for him. And so, Paul is saying that all things were created by Jesus, that Jesus made creation happen. And creation, when you, what you, you know, you step back a little bit and you think about it, creation itself is absolutely incredible, right? The, the things that we can see and even the things we can't see from the stars in the sky, the, the extent of the universe and the galaxies, even to the teeny tiny molecules in our bodies. And Jesus didn't just create humans. Paul says that he even created the angels, this invisible, these invisible spiritual powers And Paul uses four words here that some scholars would say they describe the orders of the angelic realm. And he talks about thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. But you see what Paul's point is? Since Jesus created all of these other powers, since he created everything, He is greater than what he created. He is better. He is supreme. There is none like him. There is no equal. He has no rival. Does he have an enemy? Yes, absolutely. But he, Satan, doesn't in any way even compare. 
These spiritual powers, they wouldn't even exist if Jesus hadn't created them. Now, Paul makes it clear that Jesus didn't just come from God like some had been saying, but Jesus is in fact God who was part of creating everything. Everything. All things have been created through Him, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Let's pause there a little bit because I know that, I mean, these are big, huge subjects when we think about creation and Jesus' role and all of that, and maybe it's a little bit heady and theological, so let me bring it home and personalize this just a little bit because I think that sometimes when we talk about creation, we have this tendency to kind of, you know, sort of look out there. We look at things that we can see and we see the intricacies and the wonder of all of God's creation, and it's all true and it's all real. But can you just step back for a second this morning and say that you are one of everything, that you are one of the all things. When you get up and you look in the mirror, what you see is someone that Jesus created And because He created you, you have value, and He cares for you, and He loves you. And He says not only that you were created uh, through Him, you're created for Him. You see, you were created to know Jesus, to be in relationship with Jesus. That answers the why am I here question. I'm here Because God desires to have a relationship with me whom he created. It does kind of, right? It's like, wow. So Jesus is better because he's the creator. Secondly, Jesus is better because he is the sustainer. Verse 17 Paul goes on and he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They hold together. And again, Paul is stating that Jesus existed before creation, right? He is before all things. But now he adds that he sustains everything that he created. And to sustain means to keep from falling, to uphold, to support. And in the Greek here, Paul uses the perfect tense. And using the perfect tense then carries two ideas. One is that there's a completed action, it's already done. And two, that there are continuing results of this action. And Paul is saying that Jesus continues to hold all the things that he created together. In other words, he didn't just like spin the universe into existence, launch the planets, and then kind of took his hands off, put his hands in his pocket and said, well, you're on your own, good luck. Because apart from his holding all things together, apart from this ongoing action of Jesus, everything would come apart. The whole world would collapse. And since he sustains the whole universe, do you think, do you think just maybe that he might be able to hold your world together too? 
Remember the, maybe a, the African-American spiritual, he's got the whole world in his hands? He's got the whole world in his hands. And what are some lines? He's got the, the wind and the rain in his hands. He controls that. And he's got the tiny little baby in his hands. And he's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. Why? Because he sustains us. He holds us together. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, the opening verses, verse 3, puts it this way. He says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And get this, the exact representation of his being, that should sound familiar, right? Sustaining all things by his powerful world. Word, sorry. He speaks a word. And he holds us together. And maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you're like, well, that sounds kind of out here. <laughs> what does that mean? Friends, maybe your world is feeling like it's falling apart. And if we're honest, our lives can be very messy and complicated. Seems like there can be like a lot of chaos and disorder. And and we, we can't make sense of things that are happening to us sometimes. But if we just step back and think, but I was at church one time and I heard this message from Colossians. And Jesus created me and he cares for me and he sustains me because he's looking after me. Friends, be encouraged. Be encouraged today to know that Jesus sustains the existence of everything that he created. We have life and breath right now. I don't know how many thousands of breaths we take in the day. Each one is a gift from Jesus. Think about that. Kind of blows our minds a little bit, right? Like, To think, man, He created us, He sustains us, He cares us, He helps us. And because that's true, we can surrender our problems to Him. We can come to Him with with prayer and just say, God, I, I, I just don't even know what the next thing is to do. I don't even know how to solve the problems in my life. And it may not be easy, but He knows exactly what we need. And maybe just for that moment, for that 15 minutes, or for that day, He just gives you enough grace to make it through that day. Paul, in writing uh, in Corinthians, he, he says that, you know, my power is made perfect in, sorry, your power, Jesus, your power is made perfect in my weakness. When we're weak, when we don't know what the next day holds, We've just gone through trauma. There's difficulties in our lives. We need to know that Jesus promises that His grace is going to be more than enough. And because His grace is more than enough, Jesus is enough. He's enough. Well, Paul goes on and he just kind of continues to pile on. He makes powerful statement after powerful statement. And I'm just going to jump down to my third point. 
is that Jesus is the reconciler. So Jesus is better because he's the creator. He's better because he's the saint sustainer, and he's better because he's the, the reconciler. And verse 20, Paul writes, through him now, through Jesus again, to reconcile to himself all things. So all the things that he created, he wants to reconcile those to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. So just stay with me on this, okay? So follow the story. Everything's been created by Jesus, but creation has fallen. And so there's this separation, there's this relational gap between that which was created, humanity, and God. And because there's this broken relationship, it needs reconciliation. And this reconciliation was made possible by Jesus alone, who took on flesh. It's what we, we, we talk in, in sort of theological circles, the incarnation. It's what we remember at Christmas. It is Jesus, who was God and who was with God in the beginning, now steps into earth and makes his home among us. That's why we say Emmanuel, God with us, physically present. So he never loses being fully God. But he becomes fully man, and somehow he's able to remain fully God and fully man. And as a result, is then able to go to the cross as a sinless, perfect sacrifice and die an agonizing death on a cross so that we can be reconciled to him. And Jesus, or sorry, Paul makes it clear that Jesus initiated this reconciliation. His goal was to make peace. And it happened because Jesus was willing to shed his blood on a cross. So Jesus makes this sacrifice. He paid the price. And the cross itself becomes evidence of how far God was willing to go to bring lost humanity to himself. And so Paul describes Jesus as creator, as sustainer, and reconciler. And with that kind of ends this hymn of praise. But he's not finished yet. I think he's still left thinking about this reconciliation. And he's left thinking about, well, okay, this is who Jesus is, and people are made right with God. But in view of who Jesus is, he then speaks to who humanity is and who we are. Or put another way, who we were and who we are now. So follow in verses 21 and 23, and and Paul puts this in the context of the past, the present, and the future. And so he begins in verse 21 talking about the past. He says, you were once alienated. This is where we used to be. Paul is describing really a pretty miserable condition here. This alienation, it, it implies isolation. It, it implies loneliness and, and even hostility. And, and I don't know how you receive that this morning, but to think about it, it's kind of a bleak pr- picture, right? They're living in isolation. They're lonely. They're hostile. They're enemies of God. And it, maybe it sounds a little harsh, but it's true. Because he says, they're enemies in your minds because of evil behavior or evil action. This being unreconciled to God has resulted in sinful actions. 
And these sinful actions, they just generate a never-ending cycle of sinful actions that end up separating humans from God and from one another. Right? You, 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 you know, you, you, you do something that you know you're not supposed to do, then somebody questions you about it, and then you add another sin on top of that to lying about what you did because you don't want them to know about what you did, and it just goes on and on and on. And we know all too well the pain of sin in our own life and in the lives of others. And Paul says, in the past, you were once alienated. You were separated from God. But then he brings it into the presence, and he says, now. Now. But now. And I I always like the but now. Because he's making the reference that things have now changed. Jesus who, has the, who is the reconciler, he has this purpose, he says. And this purpose is that, yes, you were separated and you were sinful, but now I'm going to make you holy. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Friends, that's a significant change, right? That's transformation. To go from being separated and alienated and lonely and enemies of God to now being made holy, blameless, no accusations. The one who was once an enemy has met the reconciler and peace has been made. And if we are in Christ today, we have been reconciled to God. We have been made holy. We are blameless. We are above reproach. That is who we are. And we can't, and that can't and won't ever change. You see, we have to remember there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying it over again. He's just saying it in different ways. God is taking the initiative to reconcile us to himself. He takes the initiative to make things right. He makes us holy. And the cross itself is evidence of the lengths that he will go to bring us to himself. And Jesus works in us to transform us so that we will stand blameless before God. Isn't that an incredible image? That on that day of judgment, that you're standing before God and you've already been declared holy without blemish, there's no accusations. All because of what Jesus has done and continues to do. So there's the past, there's the present, and there's a future. And he says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And this if is not conditional. It's not that, you know, you will remain reconciled if you do your part. He says, no, not at all. He says, we're already reconciled. We've been made holy. There's nothing that's going to change that. Therefore, we keep the responsibility to guard that to guard our future hope. Verse 23 says, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. 
So in other words, Paul is simply saying, says, hey, listen, you used to be an enemy of Jesus, but now you've been made right and holy, so continue to live into that new reality. And we cannot take this change in status, we can't take it for granted or be casual about the responsibility that we do have. In fact, one commentator writes it this way, he says, our responsibility is to do everything in our power to be practically blameless and holy in this life. We must become, he says, what we are in the Lord. You get it? We must become what we are in the Lord. And so what that means is we just have to ask ourselves some really basic questions. Is what I'm doing right now, is what I'm thinking right now, is what I'm watching right now, is that fitting for a holy person? That's the question. Now, again, our efforts don't make us acceptable to God. We're already accepted. But it's because of that acceptance that we live into this new reality. So how do we respond? Let me just give you a few things yet in addition to, I think, some of the things I've shared along the way. Like, what do we do? Like, and why, why does this even matter? And I was thinking about this in, in three key words, uh, Savior, Lord, and King. <laughs> but it also took me to our mission statement. And one is that we want to know Jesus. And I think this is just a reminder to any one of us here today or who may be listening on our line, that if we do not know Jesus personally, if we have not said yes to Jesus, you need to think about him in the context of Savior. The, the one who forgives sin, the one who redeems you from that, who paid a price and who reconciles you. God's story is simply looked at oftentimes in these four categories. There's creation, there's fall, so there's the separation and the breaking of all the original intent of what God created, then there's redemption, and then there's restoration. And, And God created us, but we're fallen people until we're redeemed, until this change takes place, and so we say yes to Jesus. He's already calling you. You are probably not even here by mistake. You You are not here by mistake, and you're not listening today or tomorrow or some other time by mistake, that God is drawing you and saying, listen, I want to know you. I created you. I created you, and I am for you. And I want to have a relationship with you. And so we talk about that and coming to terms with saying yes to Jesus, knowing Him, and then continuing to grow in our knowing and our knowledge of Him. Secondly, we then continue to walk with Jesus. Yes, as a friend. We can go on a walk and we can talk with Jesus and we can share our struggles and our burdens throughout what's happening in our lives. But we also, I think, need to understand that Jesus is Lord. The words here, even though better may sound too casual or doesn't compare to words like supreme and preeminent and, and, and all the, the other big words, but we need to remember that, that the Bible talks about Jesus in incredible language, right? He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the mega. He is supreme. He's exalted. He is 
everything. And the Bible says that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's Philippians 2 verse 10 and 11. At one day, we're going to face judgment. We're going to like, oh man, we're either going to bow in humility and gratefulness or we're going to fall probably in in fear because we're like, if I only knew, if I only knew, now you know and there's no excuse. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a chorus that we sometimes sing that has the line then, still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. And isn't that true? Like those of you who have said yes to Jesus, you understand that you make him Lord of your life, you submit, you surrender to him, you've already taken the knee, so to speak. And it means simply that we live completely for him, that there's total commitment to him. I I was thinking about how to illustrate this in some way, and I thought, you know, it's kind of like when we maybe have a guest in our home, and we show them to the room, and we say, this is your room, and maybe here's your bathroom, but that's it. Don't go in this room. The door is closed. You can't have access to this. You can't see this. But as Lord, we basically say, hey, you have access to everything. You have access to the skeletons in the closet. You have access to the passwords. You have access to my phone. You have access to my internet history. You can have access to it all. Now, there's a cliche that says, he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that's what we have to commit our lives to, saying, Jesus, will you be the center of my life? Will you take first place in everything? We walk with Jesus then when we spend time with Him. That's why this season we're spending a lot of time talking about spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines because we know how important it is to be with Jesus. And lastly, we share Jesus. See, if we recognize that Jesus is everything, that He is ruler, that He is supreme, that He is preeminent, we understand that then Jesus is king. Jesus is king of His kingdom. And the role that we then take are as ambassadors in that kingdom. And Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians where he he tells us basically that we now have become ministers of reconciliation. In other words, that when we have been reconciled to God, we want to share that with others so that they too might be reconciled to God. Listen to these words, and I'll close with this because they're I think they need no more explanation. I love how Paul puts this. Listen, verse 14, I'll start. For Christ's love compels us. That's why we do what we do, he says. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God 
who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us, those who have been reconciled, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message, friends. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, there is a lot here, and I pray, Father, that what I haven't said would, by Your Spirit, land on open hearts and open minds. And, Father, You would take the words this morning and help us make sense in our own lives of these things. To just think that You created me. Each one can say that of themselves today, that You created me. And therefore, I have value and I have worth. And Father, that You sustain us when our world feels like we might be falling apart. You give us grace to make it through that day or that week. So, Father, we thank you for that grace that sustains us. And, Father, today maybe we we really need to personalize the truth that you are the reconciler, that you gave your life on the cross so that I could, by faith, believe in you. I could, by faith, say yes to you. And that relational gap is bridged because of the cross. And I can come to you and be in relationship with you, redeemed, changed, forgiven, and then given a mission to share that good news, the gospel message with others, to be ministers of reconciliation, to be your ambassadors to this world. And so, God, empower us for the task at hand. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.